Now I know exactly what you're thinking. Why couldn't we just keep listening to Becca and Brittany <laughs> rather than hear you? And I know you're thinking that because I was thinking the same thing. But uh, here we are, nevertheless. And good morning to each and every one of you. I invite you to take God's Word, the Bible, and turn with me to the book of Romans, uh, the eighth chapter. We are going to concern ourselves with just two verses in Romans 8, and obviously we are going to focus our attention this day on the resurrection. I want to begin with a couple of statements, however, and um, I'm going to ask you what you think of these statements, whether or not you agree with them. Hope is in short supply. Agree or disagree? Here's another one. People are increasingly pessimistic. Agree or disagree? One author writes, there is a deadly plague of negativity that is infecting our whole culture and rapidly spreading through the church. He goes on. This plague is linked to intellectual sluggishness, emotional fragility, physical frailty, social decay, and spiritual backsliding. I agree with him. I won't add an amen, but I agree with him. Hope is in short supply. People are increasingly pessimistic. I don't remember where I saw this. I wasn't walking through a graveyard, I don't think, but I picked up this inscription off a tombstone, a headstone some years ago. Here it is, four pithy statements. Are you ready? I was not. I became. I am not. I care not. Oh, how that summarizes the mindset and the worldview of many in our culture and our society today. Hope is in short, short supply. Well, you guessed it. I'm going to speak of hope this day. And in particular, I'm going to speak of the hope of the resurrection. To be even more specific, I'm going to speak of what the Bible terms a living hope. Hear these words out of 1 Peter 1.3. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that is going to be my emphasis. I'm giving it to you right up front. We're going to stress this living hope that belongs to those who believe in Christ Jesus and belongs to them by virtue of the resurrection. And the verses we're going to see this in are found in Romans 8, two verses, 10 and 11. Look closely at what Paul writes here. Again, this is Romans 8, verse 10. But if Christ 
is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Why does Paul say all that? Why? Really, he's responding to an objection. That might be a strong word. He's responding to a problem, an issue, let's say, that arises out of the very first verse of this chapter, where he declares, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. I've repented of my sin. I believe in the Lord Jesus. I trust in the Lord Jesus as my Savior. That means I'm now one with him. And I have this absolute certainty that condemnation has passed. The Lord Jesus, when he was on Calvary's cross, he swallowed up whole in its entirety the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the condemnation of God. I'm now in Christ Jesus, so I know that that condemnation is passed and I'm saved. Amen. Here's my problem. I still die. Believers die, don't they? Yes, they do. Unbelievers die. So what's all this talk of no condemnation? I'm not quite getting the benefit here. How does, this, how does being a Christian and how does this glorious position in Christ and this reality that I'm now free from God's judgment, how's this working for me exactly? Because I still die. Well, that is the problem. That is the issue that Paul now resolves in verses 10 and 11. And he resolves the issue, as he does with every issue he addresses, in a very simple, very straightforward manner. He simply gives us three facts. This is it. Fact one, fact two, fact three, and let's move on. Three facts. And if we grasp these facts, then the tension, the tension that exists in our experience, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, yet I still die. This tension is resolved. It dissipates. It goes away. Here is fact number one. Here it is. Your body, yours and mine, your body is dead because of sin. Where did I get that from? I just extracted it, ripped it right out of the 10th verse. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, your body right now is dead because of sin. Notice something. I hope you noticed it already. Paul does not say you're going to die. That's right, isn't it? He does not say we're going to die. What's his point? You're already dead. It's a little harsh. Let me unpack it a little. Your body is dead because of sin. We might refer to an individual who's been condemned in a court of law. Sentence has been passed. Execution. We might now refer to that individual as what? A dead man walking. The dead man walking. His dead. Well, we, we, we talk of him as if it's already happened. Because sentence has been passed. 
And all he is waiting for is the carrying out of his execution. That's exactly Paul's point here. The sentence has already been passed. It was passed way back in the garden. Adam and Eve created in the image of God. Adam and Eve sinned, rebelled against God. As a result of their sin, God warned them, in the day you disobey me, in the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, in that day you will surely die. That was what started it all. Sentence was passed. Judgment was passed. And this is the first fact we must come to grips with. Our bodies are dead. We are dead men walking. That is the first fact Paul makes here. The second fact he makes is this. Your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, where did I get that? Go back to the 10th verse. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. So although your body is still under the sentence, the judgment of death, here's what I want you to understand. The spirit is life because of righteousness. Now that's not how I worded it. What did I say? I said, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now you should be thinking, hang on, That's not what Paul says there in the 10th verse. He says, the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit is life because of righteousness. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you have the New American Standard Version, which I happen to agree with in this context, what what do we read there? We read that the Spirit, small s, is alive because of righteousness. Now that's a little tricky. Is it a big S or a small S? Is it the spirit of God or is it my spirit? I'm inclined to think Paul is speaking of my spirit, my soul. Why? Because he just talked about my body and now he's making a contrast. He seems to be saying exactly the same thing he says at the end of 2 Corinthians 4. And he repeats it at the outset of 2 Corinthians 5. There he makes it abundantly clear. He points to our duality. And he makes this simple point. Look, to be human is to be body and it is to be soul. To be human means the expression he uses there is that you have an outer nature, your body. And you have an inner nature, your soul, your spirit. And I think he's making the same point here. I'm convinced, actually, he's making the same point here. Because he draws a comparison, a contrast. And he says, although your body, your outer nature is dead, and we know that's true, isn't it? It's decaying, wasting away. That although that is true, your body is under the sentence of death. I want you to understand this. Those of you who are in Christ, he's speaking to Christians. I want you to understand this. Your spirit is alive. Why? Because of righteousness. Your righteousness? Oh, heaven help you, my friend. No, 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 no. My righteousness? Now we're really getting ridiculous. Whose righteousness is this? It is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming full circle. He's driving us all the way back to the very first verse. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? It is because of what one of the great reformers, Martin Luther, described as the great exchange. Not the stock stock exchange. This has nothing to do with stocks or bonds. 
the great exchange. And what did Luther, that great Protestant reformer, what did he mean when he coined that phrase, the great exchange? Here it is in its simplicity and in its unbelievable depth. Here it is. That when the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon Calvary's cross, God his Father treated him as if he had lived my life. You get it. In other words, Jesus got my sin. God the Father reckoned, counted my sin, all my transgression, all those ways I've messed up, my sinfulness. God counted it all to Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross, and he treated his son, the Lord Jesus, as if he had lived my life, and he punished him accordingly. But it doesn't stop there. There's a great exchange. In an exchange, one thing goes one way and one thing goes the other way, right? The moment I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I became one with him. And do you know what I got? I got his righteousness. My sin reckoned to him upon Calvary's cross where he paid the penalty for it in full. And the moment I believed in him, I became one with him, whereby God reckoned the perfect righteousness, the perfect obedience, the perfect life that Christ lived. God counted it to me. Do you know what that means? It means my spirit, my soul is alive because of righteousness. It means there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he swallowed up that condemnation in its entirety as he hung upon Calvary's cross. That is fact number two. Let me repeat them. Fact number one, your body is dead. Fact number two, oh, your spirit, your soul is alive because of righteousness. Here's fact number three. Your body is going to rise from the dead. Where does Paul say that? Brings us into the 11th verse. If the spirit, now here he does mean the Holy Spirit. If the spirit of him, who's the him, it's God. So if the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, if that same spirit, the spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, here's what we can conclude. He, that is God, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The logic is pretty tight, isn't it? It's very concise. Look, here's an historical fact. God raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, you with me? Now understand this. That same Spirit by whom the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, that same Spirit now dwells in you. Therefore, he is the pledge of something coming. You see, Christ himself, his resurrection was the first fruits of something 
coming. It guarantees this future glorious resurrection that yes, although your body is dead, it's going to die, expire. Yes, your soul is being renewed and it is, it is alive because of righteousness. You have this absolute certainty because of the indwelling presence of the Spirit and the fact that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that the same God who raised Christ from the dead now owns you as his own, that he will also raise your dead body from the dust. He will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So how's this going to work? Well, it's pretty simple. Someday I'm going to die, right? And when I do, I will enter an intermediate state. A very unnatural state, actually, the separation of my my body and my soul, my outer nature and my inner nature, separated at the moment of death. My soul will ascend to glory, will ascend to the Lord Jesus Christ, where I will be perfected and where I will behold the glory of God in Christ's face. And it will be a joy unspeakable, unlike anything I've ever tasted in this life. And then the day is coming. We sang the words a few moments ago. There's going to be a trumpet blast. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. And with him, he is going to bring all the souls of his dearly departed. He is going to bring his people with them. And at that moment, he will raise their mortal bodies, their decayed bodies from the grave. And those bodies will be glorified. And those glorified bodies will be reunited with those glorified souls. And we will live for eternity, body and soul, glorified, glorified in the likeness of that glorified, resurrected man known as Jesus Christ. Not only that, it goes on, doesn't it? Not only is my body going to be renovated, but at that moment, that trumpet blast, this entire cosmos is going to be renovated. There is a new heavens and a new earth coming. Every remnant of sin, every remnant of decay, of corruption, of pain, of suffering, of death, it will all be fully and finally eradicated. And as the prophets declare in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord will fill, completely cover the earth as the waters of the sea upon the face of the earth, the world. This is my hope. This is the hope of the resurrection. And my friends, it is not a dead hope. It is a living hope. Please, 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 please. Optimism is not hope. Optimism, more often than not, is downright silly. Hope is optimistic, but optimism is not hope because hope is clearly defined. Hope is biblically defined, and hope is fixed on an unchangeable God and the promises of God as revealed in the Word of God. Hear it again, the words of Peter, 1 Peter 1.3. According to His great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that living hope speaks directly to the unbeliever. Am I right? Or am I right? This living hope speaks directly to the unbeliever. I'm hazarding a guess that on a Sunday morning like this, Easter morning, a gathering such as we are at this very moment right now, we have unbelievers in our midst. I'm not pointing anyone out. My goal isn't to make you feel uncomfortable or self-conscious or anything like that. My goal is simply this. I want you to hear the truth of God's word. And I want you to understand how directly God's word speaks to you. And how directly, unequivocally, this living hope speaks to you. You know, there are actually, I guess, a couple kinds of unbelievers here. A couple kinds of unbelievers. I'll limit myself to two. Unbeliever number one. Uh, the individual who knows very little of what I've just been saying. This is a little, you know, I don't go to church that often. And these kind of concepts and truths are a little bit of a novelty. And I'm, I'm still, I, you lost me 15 minutes ago. I'm still trying to get my mind around some of the things you've already said. So there, there might be unbelievers here like that. That uh, these are truths that you're hearing maybe for the first time. Not that familiar with. Well, I want to speak to you. But there's a second kind of unbeliever I want to speak to this morning. This is the unbeliever who thinks he's a believer, right? We live in a Christian culture. It's nice in some ways. It's a big problem in another way. You know why? Because people live neck, they're neck deep in a Christian culture. And, and here, here's what I find so troublesome and so worrisome at times. There are so many people who have just enough of the truth that they are inoculated to the whole truth. Did you hear what I just said? I might very well be speaking to you. There are so many people who have just, just enough of the truth because they're neck deep in this culture. They've heard about Jesus all their lives. Neck deep in this culture that they have just, just enough of the truth. They know, oh, I've, I've heard what you've said. I've heard that lots of times. Yeah, 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 I understand. I even kind of like it, maybe even believe it. But uh, my mind is not set on the things of the spirit. I, I'm not living for God. It actually makes no difference in the way I live. You see, you're neck deep in a Christian culture and you have just enough of the truth that you have been inoculated to the whole truth. You're like an old callus on an old carpenter's old hand. You take a razor to it, he doesn't feel a thing. Why? It has become desensitized. So there are unbelievers here this morning. You may fit into one of those two categories. I want you to hear... Please hear me out. Hear me out. And I say this in love, and I say this out of concern for you, that this living hope speaks directly to you, and I want to sum it up in five statements. I'm, I'm going to make this, you know, by God's grace, God's strength, I'm going to make this as simple and as basic and as plain as I possibly can. Are you ready, friend? Just five statements. Statement number one. Death is unavoidable. I've got you. You have to agree with me on that one. Death is unavoidable. Uh, your body is already dead because it's already under God's sentence. You are a mist, says James, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
All right. Death is unavoidable. Here's the second truth I want you to grasp. Death is uncontrollable. You might be eight when it happens. You might be 80. You will not determine it, my friend. It has already been determined. No man, says the author of Ecclesiastes, no man has power to retain his spirit or power over the day of his death. There are two simple truths you must agree with and acknowledge. Death is unavoidable and death is uncontrollable. Here's the third truth I want you to hear. Death is the most ordinary thing in the world. Yet very few people think about it. You have to agree with that as well. Death is the most ordinary thing in the world. Yet very few people think about it. They refuse to think about its cause. Hear me, please. Death is not natural. The biggest lie going. Death is not natural. Death is unnatural. It's the consequence of the fall. We were not created to die. Death is not natural to what it is to be human. Why we find it so distasteful and unpleasant. Death is not natural to us. It is unnatural. It is the consequence of the fall. Yet few people, few people take any time thinking about its cause. And very few people spend any time thinking about its end. It is appointed unto man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. Oh, death is unavoidable. Death is uncontrollable. Death is the most ordinary thing in the world, yet very few people think about it. Now, here's the fourth truth I want you to hear. And now I'm going to get very personal, very personal. Use a phrase I used here as we worshiped. We gathered here on Friday night. Here it is. You, my friend, and it's equally true of me. You, my friend, and the Bible testifies to it from cover to cover. You are a self-aholic. You are a self-aholic. And you have been since the moment of your birth. You're absorbed with yourself. It expresses itself in many different ways. For some, it expresses itself in gross sexual indulgence, immorality. In others, it expresses itself in substance abuse. In others, it expresses itself in bitterness and envy and rage and anger and all these things. But it expresses itself some way, some fashion, at some time. That we are plagued by self-preoccupation, self-centeredness. And as a result, we have relegated God to the periphery of our existence, to the periphery of our very lives. And in so doing, we incur his judgment. And now here's the fifth truth as I arrive at the good news. Here is the fifth truth. You, my friend, must look to Christ. You must look to Christ. The Son of God clothed himself with our humanity. That's marvelous. Hear this. He who made all things was carried in the womb of a woman. He who upholds all things was held in the arms of a woman. He experienced life in a fallen world. He bore our sin and our shame. He was bruised. That we might be healed. He was humiliated. That we might be exalted. 
He was condemned that he, we might be justified. Oh, what it is to believe in the Son of God. What it is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have this assurance that now his forgiveness supersedes my sinfulness. His merit eclipses my guilt. And his righteousness hides my vileness. I have absolutely no idea what's going on in your mind. But I'm going to hazard a guess. There is someone here this very moment thinking to himself, thinking to herself, preacher, but you don't know what I have done. You do not know the life I have lived. You have absolutely no idea the depths to which I have sunk and my shame and my guilt and this idea that God would forgive me. Oh, hear me, friend. God is willing to forgive you. God is willing to restore you. God is willing to cleanse you. Why? We heard it Friday night. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended to God as a fragrant aroma, a pleasing offering, whereby his justice is satisfied, his wrath is turned away, and his unimaginable mercy is secured for all those who are in Christ Jesus, your sin is not an impediment to God's forgiveness. Your unwillingness to repent and believe is an impediment to God's forgiveness. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is a promise without any strings attached. It is a promise, it is an invitation that the Lord Jesus Christ himself extends on the basis of his substitutionary sacrifice that all who will repent of their sin and all who will believe in him, trust in him, come to grips with the fact that yes, I have sinned against God, rebelled against God. I'm living my life however I please. And I know it's dishonorable to God. I know it's displeasing to God. And I know what I deserve from God. Oh, come knowing this, acknowledging this, and understanding again that Christ's sacrifice, his substitutionary sacrifice, is a fragrant offering which has already ascended to God. And God's invitation is to come, where you will find forgiveness, where you will find restoration, and where you will find cleansing. Now, hang on, my friends. This living hope speaks not only to the unbeliever, but it speaks to the believer. How? How? Let me suggest quickly five or six ways. For those, who are, those of us who are Christians, those of us who are in Christ, yes, my body is dead, still under the sentence of death, but my spirit, my soul is already alive because of the righteousness of Christ. And I have this living hope that someday my body will be raised from the dead, reunited with my soul, glorified, and I will inherit the, the renewed heavens and earth. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. We have this living hope, but it speaks to us now. Let me suggest a couple of ways. Here's one. This living hope increases our joy. Christian, yes, it does. This living hope increases our joy. Here, Romans 5, 2. We rejoice in hope 
of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Life is full of regrets. Life is full of mistakes. Life is full of failures. I was thinking this through not that long ago. You know, I was a lot happier when I was younger, a child, teenager, than I am now. Do you know why? Because when I was a young man, teenager, there was more to anticipate than to remember. You're hearing me. There was more to anticipate than to remember. Now, however, sadly, there is more to remember than there is to anticipate. And I find myself reflecting far more than I find myself dreaming. And I need to give myself a little slap across the face once a while and remind myself of this living hope that the best is yet to come. Hope, hope increases joy. Secondly, Christian, hope cultivates patience. Romans 8, 25. If we hope for what we do not see, the resurrection, the coming renovation of the entire cosmos. If we hope for what we do not see, yet see, we wait for it with patience. This is a hope that, uh, which is a light that penetrates the shadow. It penetrates the shadow of illness. It penetrates the shadow of grief. It penetrates the shadow of worry. It penetrates the shadow of loss. The best is yet to come. And hoping for it, waiting for it, longing for it, it cultivates patience in me. Third response is this. Hope encourages holiness. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Why? I know he's coming. I know I'm going to see him. You know what that means? I want to get ready. It's going to be like a wedding. And so the wedding is marked for next Saturday. What are the bride and groom busy doing this coming week? Oh, there's a flurry of activity. Why? They want to be ready. They want everything to be just so. They want everything to be in place. Well, this living hope, it produces, it encourages in us holiness. Why? Because we know we are going to see the one who is the object of our desire. We're going to see he who is the object of our love, the object of our affection. And so we purify ourselves as he is holy. We remember that our bodies are dead. And with that in mind, we remember Paul's command in Romans 6, 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. We are dead men walking. Therefore, we do not let sin reign in our bodies. We do not give our bodies, our lives, our beings to whatever we please. We do not indulge the flesh living however we want. But because we have, because we have this great hope, we purify ourselves longing for the one who is the object of our desire. Let me suggest a fourth way in which this living hope speaks to us as Christians. It provides 
stability. Oh, it provides stability. Hebrews 6, 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, heaven, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. What does an anchor do? An anchor keeps the ship steady in turbulent waters. Had the opportunity to visit the, some of the catacombs in Rome a year or so ago. And I remember some of the artwork and something that was depicted, not so much in the catacombs I was in. I did see one or two instances of it. But is often depicted in the catacombs in Rome where the Christians met to worship, fearing the Roman authorities. Do you know it was one of the most popular symbols to be painted on some of those walls? An anchor. An anchor. Why? A hope. And the hope imparts stability. That whatever transpires in life, you've heard me say it before, here it is again, that although the Christian life does not always go well, it always ends well. Because the best is yet to come. Oh, the fortitude and the solidity and the stability that this living hope provides to the Christian. Is there any hope? Let me go first cir- full circle right back to where I began. Is there hope when everything in life is hopeless? Is there hope when everything in life is hopeless? The answer is a resounding yes. Why? Hear the words of 1 Peter 1.3 yet again. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know what that calls you to do, believer? You know what that compels us to do, Christian? Simply this, in the words of that chorus we sing sometimes. Oh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now for your blessing upon the preaching, the proclamation of your word. You are well aware of every need represented here at this very moment. You are very well aware of the condition of every heart, young and old, male and female. You are aware of those who belong to you, and you know those who are still outside of Christ. And so we ask you, we beg of you, that you be well pleased to take what has been said. Take your word and apply it now as only your spirit can, and give understanding where there is confusion. Oh, and give love where there is animosity and hostility. Give humility and brokenness where there is arrogance and stubbornness. And we pray, our Father, that your spirit might work powerfully in our midst this day. We ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom among us and for the glory of he in whose name we do pray. 
the matchless name of Christ. Amen.